Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 45. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the first episode of season three, Season of Death. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Season of Death. With Aaron dead, John wordless, and Scorpy having won, the episode opens on Moya where everyone waits for news from John. Rigel finds the nearly dead Diagnosian, and everyone races to the planet where Scorpius, a defrosted Scarin, and the Moya crew end up coming together in disastrous ways. Hello and welcome back. We are back from our April hiatus. Thank you to our listeners for being patient with us while we took a little bit of time off. April was a terrific month as I got married to my awesome partner, and May promises to be just as good as we get into season three of Farscape. So, Taz, how does it feel to be Mrs. Taz? (laughs) Pretty good. I like it a lot. It was an awesome wedding. And yeah, it's been a long time coming, so it was really good. Aw. (laughs) (laughs) So, season of death. The season opener for season three of Farscape. It would pick up right where we left off at the end of season two. John has been brain surgery, and the neural clone has been removed by the diagnosian. But Scorpius has swooped in and stolen it along with the part of John's brain that allows him to talk. So if you remember at the end of season two, he was screaming on the table as we closed out the episode. And so for an episode that has a lot going on and a lot of exposition, setting up a lot of the plot lines that will echo through the rest of the season, the basic plot of, of Season of Death is actually pretty simple. Moya's crew wants to get off the planet and Scorpius and his crew want to get off the planet, all without running into each other. And obviously they're going to run into each other and even more shenanigans ensue. But um, it's, it's a lot of a cat and mouse game actually going on. Yeah, I think cat and mouse is like a really good way to describe it. Because there's actually this like really creepy thing that happens pretty early on. Which is that we found out that Scorpius and Bracca know Grunschluck. And so Scorpius literally takes mind control over him in a really creepy way with creepy, like, ugh, so gross, because he does some really grody things. But I also want to point out real quick, Grunschluck is played by actor Hugh Keys Byron, or Byron, who played Toe Cutter and Morton Joe in the Mad Max movies. So if you have like a visceral distaste reaction to Grunschluck, there might be multiple reasons. <laughs> they might be all involved with Mad Max. <laughs> I did not know that, but that makes that makes a lot of sense. So he's actually playing very because Grunschluck is a character. His he's got white pasty skin he's got the really gross hair he's got this i don't know food stubble all caught around his mouth and he's just kind of this really gross greedy vile kind of person the seedy used car salesman of the uncharted territories only in this case he's selling doctor services which must be in short supply and making a killing off of it oh yeah yeah so scorpius takes over grunschlick And he's actually kind of literally puppet mastering Mm -hmm. Grunschlick. And he has Grunschlick shoot himself and then essentially tell the Moya crew, oh, Scorpius ran off. Yeah. Because at this point, they all know that, you know, Scorpius came, stole part of John's brain and the chip and then 
And so now they all think that Scorpius is gone. And it's kind of one of many I'm gone or I'm dead plots that Scorpius pulls throughout the episode. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think there's just like, I think there's a lot going on with Scorpius this episode. Scorpius and Harvey, which I'm sure we're going to get into the meat of. But yeah, so... Scorpius is snuck down to the planet in a marauder and they use a stealth approach so they wouldn't be seen by by Moya and Talon who are in orbit and that's how they snuck onto the base. It turns out like at the in in season 2 Diamond Dichotomy, the last episode of season 2, we hear John as Scorpius sending out a distress signal to Scorpius as command carrier saying Hello, come get me. I have complete control of John Crichton. But it turns out that Grunschlick, as soon as he met the Moya crew, sent out a signal to Scorpius to say, Hey, you got your the person you're looking for is here at my place. I'll hold him for you if you pay me a lot of money. So it's that's how Scorpius got there so quickly and snuck past all their defenses, is because Grunschlick sold them out immediately. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting about that is it also gives us a little bit more backstory on Scorpius because it turns out that he came to this diagnosis in particular to get his cooling suit installed. And that's how he knows the diagnosis. That's how he knows Grunschlick to begin with. So we find out a little bit more about Scorpius's background that, you know, it's not the peacekeepers who gave him this suit. He actually went off on his own into the uncharted territories and and pulled himself together, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I guess then the question I kind of have is, so he essentially came fully formed to the peacekeepers. He came and he was, you know, already had his cooling suit. He already had control of himself. He obviously was already smart. And I think he'd obviously already met Natira. So mm-hmm. I think that makes his character more interesting to me because then he didn't choose the peacekeepers because they had something he wanted, like, control over his body he literally chose the peacekeepers over the scarens because he hates the scarens so much yeah and what i like about this opening of finding out more about scorpius's backstory is we're starting to peel back the layers of who scorpius is and that's going to be a major theme for season three is who is scorpius where did he come from how did this scaren sebation hybrid come to be and come to be an avid peacekeeper amongst this xenophobic society and what mm-hmm. is this conflict between the scarens and the peacekeepers all about because we've gotten hints of it before in season two with the royal planet and like the scarens are a threat to the peacekeepers but we don't really know the nature of that threat yet. That's something that's still unfolding. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, <laughs> Grunchlick and Scorpy and Braca and then this brand new baby officer. We're going to call him <laughs> Officer Cobrin, or we could just call him Officer Redshirt. Because, <laughs> you know, he is very black. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. He's the Marauder pilot who is... is every stereotype of a cocky young pilot that you can get especially one of the peacekeepers yeah so officer Cobrin, who's like cocky young and who braca hates because Cobrin is clearly trying to usurp braca's position as scorpy's favored right hand man mm-hmm. i love lieutenant braca so much and i know oh i say gosh. this having watched the series and you probably won't appreciate him so much until you get through it all but oh i love how he's just so dedicated to scorpius Ugh, I know. There's something kind of kinky there going on, I'll be honest. Oh, totally kinky. <laughs> Whether okay. or not Scorpius wants it to be, 
Braca is totally oh. on his knees for him, whatever he wants. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? This is Scorpios we're talking about. Scorpius is 100% in on this. Come on. Scorpius and Natira, come on. After what we saw, they're, he's into it. Yeah. No, he is into it. I'm not sure that so, he would pick Braca, though. Braca, anyway. Okay. And I have to point out, like, Braca's expressions this whole episode. So when Scorpius takes mind control over Grunchlick... Officer Cobran is like really into it. He's like grinning and happy. And you can see that like Braca is looking at this and like this is a step too far for him, but he doesn't know how to back out at this point. Yeah. He's already sold his loyalty to Scorpius. He's already proven that he's way more loyal to Scorpius than any other commander because I mean, he sold out Christ to Scorpius. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of made his bed and now he has to lie in it with Scorpius who's doing really gross things like taking over gross people's brains and eating John's brain. Let's not oh, forget yeah, that. <laughs> eating John's brain. Oh, so gross. My notes are like WTF, all caps. I had to stop it for a second so I could close my eyes. Because like, I, I kind of remembered it was going to happen, but then watching it again is just disgusting. So the piece of brain so that gross. he's eating of John's is from where the neural clone is attached that was extracted mm-hmm. from his head. That controls his talking ability. And he just like looks at it and he pops into his mouth and the expression on his face is like, I haven't watched Hannibal, but, you know, it's that kind of just like deliciousness that he gets to eat part of John's brain. It's really gross. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, and then later on, Scorpius like actually makes Grunge like bite off his own finger, which I'm like, how strong are Grunge like's teeth? Because I'm sorry, like biting off like bone to the point where like I'm like that's legit hard mm-hmm. you know but so anyway so then during that like Braca's expression is is even more like I I've st- I've crossed a line I didn't know I had but yeah. now I'm too far in do you know what I mean so yeah. like even though Braca has like minimal dialogue in this episode he, he kind of does have like a major character arc right here which is like this is the moment where he goes from this is a commander that I'm kind of like I kind of have the hots for him commanding me to like, to like, okay, there's no backing out now. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm with this guy till the end. Yeah. Yeah. Braca. Oh, Braca. So Rigel stumbles upon the Diagnosian and John and he calls up to the ship and then off screen, Zan apparently instructs him what to do. So when the whole crew comes in, we see, Rigel performing CPR on the Diagnosian. Right. So remember the Diagnosian is a species that's super sensitive to bacteria and viruses and any kind of contagion. And so they have this mask over their faces to prevent that from happening. And in his surgical area, he can take it off because it's a sterile sterile zone. And Scorpius at the end of season two, Daimy Dichotomy, he took off the mask and breathed in his face and caused him to fall down. So luckily he was still in the surgical room so Rigel could flip on the anti-bacteria, um, the sterile system, so that, and that's how he was able to recover, basically. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to just a note about Rigel. Like, originally they all went back to the ship because John Wood didn't want them there in the surgery with him. He wanted to go through this alone. Aaron had just died. He's grieving. He's got Scorpius in his head. He killed her under the control Mm -hmm. of the Scorpius in his head. And so he's like, go away. I will get this out of my head and then I'll call you when it's done. 
And the reason Rigel goes back down early, though, is because he separately paid Grunschlick to try and find him a ship back to Hyneria. So mm-hmm. I kind of like the fact that it's it's Rigel being very Rigel about his motivations and what he wants to get out of any kind of deal he makes or any stranger that he comes across that mm-hmm. actually is the one who is able to get down there and find both John and the Diagnosian in time for them to be to be okay. Yeah. Rigel's self-interest and I think that Rigel's whole thing of like wanting to leave Moya it ties back really clearly to the De- through the looking glass episode mm-hmm. because in that one Moya couldn't starburst regularly anymore and in this one they're not sure she's even going to recover at all so we could see that even though Rigel has done a lot of character development over the season in between these two episodes he still kind of always is going to come back to that core self-centeredness, I'm out for me person that he Mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Well, he wants to get back to his empire. He wants to go back Mm -hmm. to being a ruler of the empire and get back at his cousin Bishan, who stole his throne from him. And like, he's got these deep reasons for doing it. So even though he has grown, that's still a very central part of who he is. I mean, remember in Out of Their Minds early in season two, when they do the body swaps, Mm-hmm. And he's like, we have to swap back into our real bodies because I can't rule my empire as a human. I can't yeah. do it as John Crichton. I have to be Rigel Dominar of the Hynerian Empire. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting then because I guess Rigel, even though all they've seen about how difficult it is to step back into their lives, I think like his fundamental personality is I will be able to do this. Like, mm-hmm. And I know we've talked about that in the past and we did some really deep exploration of it, but... I don't know, I guess coming back to it after a short time away from the show, it makes it really clear that while everybody else has developed over the course of two seasons, I think that like Rigel's dominarness is like just too fundamental to who he is. Yeah, it's a central part of his personality. I would definitely agree with that. It's like, okay, it's like the Westworld thing, which no spoilers because I think it's from like the first episode, but that there's like this core part of who the androids are in that show. And if you take away that core part, then it's like they really, really flip out and lose it because it's the only thing that's keeping them going. Mm -hmm. So that you have to build the rest of their personality against this one trait or memory. Yeah. And so I think that that's what it is for Rigel is like he can develop, but he has to develop around the fact that he is a dominar. Mm -hmm. And accepting that he might not go back to being a dominar would just his entire life would fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, think of also his his lifespan, too. I mean, he was a, clearly a dominar for probably at least over 100 cycles because he's old. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, he's been a prisoner for 200 cycles of the peacekeepers. And that was like the only thing he had to hold on to in prison. And mm-hmm. so that's what kept him going. So, yeah, it's, I think it's embedded very deeply into his psyche about that, which is, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. Everyone has their, their thing. His just happens to be very self-centered and, and all about Rigel. So they don't know at this point, the crew doesn't know if John is alive inside there or if the brain damage has been so much that he's essentially a vegetable. So they have Zan do unity. Yeah, and she really doesn't want to. So yeah. this whole conversation, who is there? There's Dargo, there's Stark, there's Zan, there's Grunschlick, who is being possessed by Scorpius at this point, and there's the Diagnosian. Yeah. And is Rigel still there? Yeah, Rigel's there. Rigel's still there. So so Zan, remember the in end of season two, 
Zan had unity with John while he was possessed by Scorpius, the Scorpius clone, and it went really badly, and she got hurt by it. So she doesn't want to... She's kind of resisting this idea of unity. And Dargo's really insistent. We we have to know what's going on with John, because he can't tell us. And all mm-hmm. they know is that Scorpius was has been and gone, and then there's this other side argument about the donors, which we'll get into later. The genetic matches for John, who could provide him cerebral fluid. We'll come back to that part later. So Zan shares unity with John, and when she comes out of it... She's like just completely distressed because John wants to die. And one Mm. of the reasons he wants to die is, well, Aaron's dead. And the other one that we haven't really talked much about yet is inside his head is Harvey. Scorpius Mm -hmm. Neuroclone is not gone. And that's actually one of the first scenes of the episode that we see is John and Harvey inside his head on that pier and Harvey saying... I'm still here, so the only thing for you to do now is to die. Yeah. I want to talk about that for a second because I think it's interesting. Harvey doesn't just want John to die. He isn't presenting it as like, a, oh, you want to die. He's like, I want to escape, and the only way that I can escape is if you're dead, mm-hmm. which it really brought me back to like essentially Scorpius's last line from season two, which was, I'm going to leave you here. So that you will be ruined by unfulfilled revenge. And I'm kind of misquoting it there. But essentially, his curse to John is unfulfilled revenge. So I think that a clone of Scorpius stuck inside John's head where he can't get revenge, because obviously John is not going to go and get revenge on Scorpius's behalf, actually would be Scorpius's worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. And since Harvey is Scorpius at this point... It's really interesting to me that that's kind of, I don't know, it just brought me back. It's like, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of this neural chip, which is what we had in John's head during season two, that black mesh that was pulled off his brain. And the idea is that there was bleed. There was like somehow having that physical presence in there bled over into John's neural pathways. So there's a second consciousness in his own consciousness now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a separate being really that's there and the first thing he wants to do is to end it all you know it's mm-hmm. just like you really were this one one task oriented being harvey was sent there to get the wormhole information and have it stored in the storage part of the chip and get it to scorpius and now that that mission is done he's done and that's the starting place we have for harvey of this season and that's going to be another thread that's going to be really fascinating to watch evolve over season three yeah yeah harvey is great over this season like if you if the neural clone really drove you crazy in season two you know just wait because harvey gets real good yeah definitely so they end up getting into this huge argument. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about the ethics of these cryogenically frozen people because Mm -hmm. that becomes a kind of sticking point, which is that Zan and Zan and Stark are really upset because the Diagnosian and Grunchlick keep people that are right like a second or two before death and they keep them cryogenically frozen essentially so that they're fresh when they need organs body parts cerebral fluid in this case cerebral fluid in this case i don't know i i have to admit like i I know stark is more connected to the kind of mystical Mm -hmm. so i imagine he is actually seeing something because he is really genuinely upset about that 
But me, I'm kind of like, I don't know, I, I don't really have an ethical problem with it. And I, it was kind of interesting to me that like, everybody else did. And I wondered if it was just something I was missing. So I think there's two things going on. The Stark angle is definitely the mystical, because he's like seeing the soul inside the body. And his claim is they're trapped between realms. They're not in the real realm where they're alive with us. And they're not in the passing beyond realm where ghosts or souls go when they die. So they're they're trapped. And he sees that as a moral bad. Like that is a terrible thing to do to a soul. And I guess mm-hmm. it depends on how much do you believe in the soul. And does the soul deserve to be able to pass on and be in one state or the other and not be trapped in limbo? On the other hand, then you have, like, I don't know, me and my atheistic view of the world, <laughs> where it's like, okay, you're dead, you're dead. If you're a vegetable, you're a vegetable. In certain medical conditions, yes, you could come back from. But if you're basically brain dead and you're going to die if you wake up, why not use your body for organ donation, basically? I mean, I have that on my driver's license. Many people do. Like, if I'm not going to survive, use my body to help someone else. I guess the third thing is you have to trust, and this is something that I think we'll get into next episode a lot more, you have to trust that these people are really are on the brink of death. Mm-hmm. And it's not like body snatchers, you know, yeah, stealing your kidney in a bathtub at a party. Yeah, it's not aliens too. <laughs> yeah, they just like are using people. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess that, okay, so if we're pretending that these people all were right on the brink of death, which again, we'll get into next episode. Don't yell at us. <laughs> I guess my thing is I understand Stark's point of view, which is like their souls can't move on because that's literally his entire job. His entire self is based around helping people move on. Mm hmm. But then at the same time, I'm like, Zan is like a healer. I'm like, so Zan, are you like not okay with any sort of organ transplanting? I think you have to remember with Zan is that she's a priest before she's a healer. Okay. Healer is her secondary job. The spiritual well-being of a person is her primary job, right? Yeah. So and with Zan, so she's, she's a spiritual being, first of all. And I think the second part of this is there is an element of alienness and alien worldview to Mm -hmm. it that you could probably read into it where... The soul is tantamount for Stark and it's tantamount for Zan. It's a very important part of being a creature and mm-hmm. spirit with spiritual energy and a place to go and all that sort of thing. And so their priorities, you could argue, because of they are not human priorities, even though they are human analogs, could be read into yeah. it. And maybe that's a hand wave more than an no, actual no, no. argument. I, I mean, I do think it's a good point. And I, I think that... <laughs> Yeah, I guess ethically it does get a little murky because even even we wouldn't like keep somebody on life support for 10 years on the off chance that you might find a perfect match for some of their organs. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I guess I shouldn't call it really alien because a lot of religious views on Earth have that same feeling like the soul cannot move on if the body is desecrated. Right. Yeah. It's a very real belief. And it's, you know, respecting the dead, respecting the ancestors, respecting your kin is mm-hmm. is huge in a lot of cultures and even our culture especially and i'm going to put a shout out there to the immortal life of henrietta lax which hbo just did a movie on i haven't seen it yet the book is amazing but that's one of the central arguments mm-hmm. is these cells that were kept alive they are part of this woman who was used to be a living breathing person who has family is her soul able to go on to heaven if she has some part of her body still alive? And, you know, so those belief systems are, they are not alien, but they're 
they're a different view and they are equally valid. And I think yeah. Stark and Zan represent that value. And I think it's good mm-hmm. that they do. Yeah, no, no, that's a good point. So anyway, now they kind of come to this at the ethics of do they allow the diagnosis not just to borrow some fluids from one of these donors, but actually kill one of the donors in order to use their brain matter to replace John's. Mm-hmm. Zan comes down on the side of killing John. <laughs> <laughs> she is so distressed by what she saw in his head. Either we don't know what she saw, but clearly John communicated to her that he wanted to die and she wants to be merciful and give him death. And Grunchlick's right there with the drugs to kill him because he's being controlled well, by Scorpius. Well, Grunchlick's Scorpius, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. He's being controlled by Scorpius. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, here, this will do it. No problem. <laughs> I also want to point out the interesting thing for me about Zan is I don't think it's just that John wants to die. I think it's that she was so traumatized by the evil, as she calls it, in John's head from last from Dime Dichotomy, that seeing that the neural clone still exists in John's head is enough for her to be like, this is a mercy killing. Like, I think even if John mm-hmm. had been like, hey, no, I'm still here. Wait, you know, I, you know, use the donor. I want to be alive. The fact that she went in, she saw the neural clone was still there. I think she still would have been like, let's let's kill him. This isn't right. Yeah. Yeah. Could could very well be. Dargo is the one who's like, no, <laughs> we are going yeah. to save John. We just lost Aaron. I'm not letting us lose John. Grunch, like you and Zan are like kicked out of here. Go. And then he points at John, who is like, being incoherent and says don't make me tongue you and it's it's perfect dargo i just love it and so, so they, they do follow through john has surgery he regains his speech so the way that they end up getting the donor is that stark kind of starts screaming and then he does a totally stark thing which is that he like opens up the cryo freezer i think at this point not even because he wants to save john but just because he's so offended by the cryo freezers in general (laughs) so he opens up the cryo freezer the dude dies and then we jump ahead a little bit in time to after the the diagnosis has used the donor to save john so john finally regains his voice and it turns out that zan wasn't lying Damage repaired. Speech should return. Should. Will know soon. Hey, where are you going? Must excrete. Dargo. Aaron's gone. Want to die. Aaron died so that you could live, John. She would want you to keep fighting. Lost. Still in her scorpion. Listen to me. The chip's out. Its tendrils are dead. The scorpion in your head is merely a remnant, a, 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 an impotent wraith buzzing in your ear. You are stronger than he is. Show him. Stark. Stark. So yeah, so here John is like at the end of his rope. Like Aaron's gone, Harvey's still there, and that is what he wants. He wants to end it because he doesn't see a way out of this that's anything positive if Harvey is still in his head. Mm -hmm. It is interesting because I think that 
if this is where John was at the end of season two, because it's, you know, there is so much overlap. Like this is supposed to have essentially been like minutes after season two. Why he decided to go through with the surgery in the first place, you know, Mm -hmm. is do you think that he thought, okay, if the chip is gone and the clone is gone, I'll be okay and I would want to live? I think there's two things. I think the first thing, John hasn't fully given up and he wants it out as a victory over Scorpius because this thing has taken him over. He doesn't ever want to have that happen again to him. Mm -hmm. And he wants to keep the wormhole information away from Scorpius and... You know, if he gets it out, he can smash it, right? Okay. That's what I envision his his dream goal is, is to smash it and Scorpius never gets it. I mean, Scorpius obviously thwarts that plan. I think the other thing is, is that he's in this, this state where he's helpless on this table. His, he just had brain surgery. He can't talk. And all he has is Scorpius in his head, who we're going to call Harvey. And this creature that has taken him over and is going to be with him until he dies and I think there's just mm-hmm. this, that's the last straw. And also potentially that Harvey is influencing him more than he thinks it would otherwise be. Like, we mm-hmm. know he's not under Harvey's control, but it's like a close peer or somebody whispering in your ear that, oh, you're worthless. Your only way out of this is to die, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not until Stark tells him, hey, you're stronger than this. You can get over this, that he finally is able to pull himself out of it. In yeah. one of the most glorious scenes in Farscape ever of ever, which I'm going to play now because it's amazing. Play it, Sam. <laughs> hey, Harvey, let's have a little chat. I don't wish to chat, John. I wish to leave. That is why you must die. Why don't you kill me? You did it before. Stop my brain. Function cold. What's the matter? You lost your touch? The circumstances are different now. Yes, they are. You got no connections, no backup, no power supply. No place to hide. I'm going to make some rules now. Come on. Let me show you what I mean. Now, John, you listen to me. Not this time, Scorpio. This brain ain't big enough for the two No, Crichton. I'm warning you. I'm sorry, sweetheart. Come on, Scorpy. Come on, man. Show me that ugly grin. I'm warning you, Crichton. Now you stop. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't think so, remember? Out with the old, in with the new. Can I get a hell yeah? It's time to pray, Scorpy. Pray for your soul, Scorpy, if you have one. And pray for the soul of Aaron. Son! Crichton! Shut up! That's awesome. That's awesome. And I I know that's one of the quotes that's just a lot of action that we're trying to get sound around. But in this case, the sound, the hell yeah, and the crowd cheering and the whoa at the end. I think when everyone watched it for the first time, we was like, oh, 
This is a game changer for how you treat this character inside John's head and this landscape mm-hmm. of John's head that we now have. Because until this point, it's been on this pier in his head as the lake. And we haven't really, and otherwise it's been externalized to John hallucinating Scorpius outside in, in Moya. And so now we're getting into the internal landscape of John's brain and how he interacts with Scorpius within it. And there's one thing I really wanted to point out about this is that it starts out on the pier and John is in white. He is in his white Iasa shirt. He's got the pants on. He's in his very early season one naive John innocent John not having been through the horrors of the peacekeepers and the uncharted territories John and when mm-hmm. the scene shifts and he throws Scorpius or Harvey rather into this back alley with a dumpster he's in full black he is in the sh- shirt he's in the peacekeeper leather pants the boots that he's taken on as he's lived through the uncharted territories it's basically his season two costume and that change is you know the visual change to show you know, passive John versus active John and how he's taking control of Harvey and his brain. And I just, I just love it. It's just like this whole new landscape for them to work with and Harvey being an integral part of it. And then he gets thrown in a dumpster with all of John's rage at Aaron's death wrapped Mm -hmm. up in it. And it's just so much fun. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think that's a good point of kind of, it reframing how we as an audience get are going to treat the character because yeah up until now it's like our first introduction to him was him shutting down John's brain and then after that it's just been scary upon scary upon scary upon scary upon scary but now this whole scene you know with like the you know Wrestlemania like at the end where he like (laughs) you know he's doing that like that that landing that they do and Mm -hmm. he's and it's like all just completely ridiculous like in the middle there the first time he hits Scorpius he hits him into this abandoned building and then Scorpius is rolling on the floor on his back like he's a beetle and he can't get up yeah. You know, so it's like it really is this reintroduction of score of the Harvey kind of saying, "Okay, you used to be afraid for of him. You don't have to be afraid of him anymore. He's powerless." So if he's powerless, then what does that mean? Is he going to be comic relief? Is he going to be there to help John? Like, and that's kind of where we begin to play with who Harvey is. Mhm. And it's really great. So look forward to that for this season too. Yeah. I also want to point out something real quick. You mentioned the kind of horrors that John had seen. And when I was rewatching this, I noticed that in between season one and season two, they changed the intro like a little bit. But in between two and three, it's like a massive shift yeah. in terms of the wording of the intro. Because it has like these overlapping John voices, you know, where they're using the season one words, but it's like it's overlapping and the stronger, more dominant voice and sometimes like the less stronger and dominant voice is clearly a John from this season. Where instead of being like, uh, you know, I was shot through a wormhole and I ended up in a distant part of the galaxy. And instead of you know, saying what he usually says, he's like, I'm trying to stay alive. And instead of saying the wonders I've seen, he says the nightmares I've seen. And he's using words like, should I stay in the home I've chosen? Or should I open the door knowing mm-hmm. that Earth is unprepared for the nightmares I've seen? And it's like, oof. 
It's yeah. It was really interesting to listen to a second time around. Yeah, the new the new credits are fantastic. Uh, the other thing I like about them is you notice the script that they use. It doesn't just mm -hmm. show the names; it shows them in a different script and then flips them over to English letters. And that to me kind of signals how how John has adapted to this new world. He's becoming part of it. It is a dangerous place that he is now part of that he has to to live with and. How much of that does he take home with him if he ever gets home? Yeah. Well, I also like that it's, I do like this, uh, this image of an opening door because I think it ties back to human reaction where in human reaction, he was just like so horrified at what humans were doing, kind of being like, this is first contact. We should be open and wondering. We should be excited. But I think now at this point, he's kind of coming to a place where he understands that position. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he always understood it because obviously their reactions were coming from his ideas of what human reactions would be. But at the same time, it just really struck me that, you know, the, the wording of like the home I've chosen Mm -hmm. And then also this image of like an opening door, which means that he already believes that he has the capability of getting home. And also just this idea of should he go home? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or should you know? he stay out here and give it up? Yeah. Great questions. And I'm not going to delve too deep into them because I think the show yeah. delves really deeply into them as we keep going forward. Yeah, for certain. But I, I just liked it. I thought it was real good. It is really good. I agree with that. Yeah. So... We've gotten to the point where John is now with it. He's gotten Scorpius, he's gotten Harvey under control in his head. He wants to leave. Zan and Stark have gone off to do something somewhere else because Zan got kicked out of the room. And we flip back to Scorpius. So Scorpius and Bracca, Lieutenant Redshirt, <laughs> are, are waiting for the command carrier. So they came in on a marauder on a stealth trajectory. The command carrier got delayed by a battle of some sort that they mentioned. We don't know what it is, but they're five hours delayed. So they're they're trying to get out without being seen by Moya's crew because there are three people. They don't want to get trapped. Grunchluck is their pawn. And Grunchluck has an ace up his sleeve. Is that what we should call it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Accurate. Yeah. So this little light goes off and the diagnosis goes to check it out. It's one of the cryo freezers auto cycling to defrost somebody. And when he gets to it, he finds out that, oh, it's a Scarin, and the Scarin <laughs> fries the poor Diagnosion, who has survived up until this point and no longer. Tokat, I think is his name. Aww. And we find out a little bit more about Scarins and Grunchluck, and I'm going to play that because it's a great conversation. And this is also the conversation where uh, Scorpius makes Grunchluck bite off his fingers. I'm just pointing that out because that's what all the screaming is about. A Scarin? Here? Why? Ah! Get frilled. Grunchlick, you can do one of two things with your mouth. The first is talk to me. Scarens are after you. 
They found out this is where you had your cooling system installed. And they sent a spy who offered me currency to keep him hidden till you came back for a checkup. And you took his money. <laughs> Just his advance. I was going to keep the dumb fellow frozen and hand him over to you. But you didn't. When your goons came in locked and loaded, I kind of doubted your good intentions. As insurance, I switched on the Scarron's auto-release. Three arms delay. If you'd behaved and paid what we'd agreed, I'd have switched it off. I know he kills you very slowly. So Grinchluck is not as stupid as everyone thinks he is. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of my takeaways from that. And what I like about it is it's this extra layer of bringing in, reintroducing the Scarens and who they are and why they're scary. They've got really mm -hmm. tough skin. They're hard to pierce through. They've got this heat magic stuff going on that can kill people and interrogate mm -hmm. them. I also kind of like the fact that Scorpius here kind of gets shown up by Grunchlick mm -hmm. and is like, so I was going to screw you over. And then Grunchlick's like, ha ha, I'm going to screw you over. <laughs> <laughs> and it just yeah. satisfies me on a level of, of Scorpius doesn't win everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think this like whole episode has been like Scorpius either winning or losing extremely. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like he wins and then he loses and then he wins a lot and then he loses but like just enough so that we're like he's not invincible i think that that's what i kind of got out of it was like his lack of invincibility mm -hmm. because like in pretty much in the episodes leading up to Daimi dichotomy there's this scorpius that's just completely invincible and the only time they manage to outwit him is literally by essentially dropping their version of a of a bomb of a nuclear bomb mm -hmm. you know yeah, And that's the only way that they can win against him is by going just all out and getting everybody almost killed. Yeah, And then so here it's kind of like we have we have, first of all, the reversal of Harvey, who goes from being somebody who's frightening to somebody who's more comic. And then we also have this kind of slight reversal on Scorpius where he's no longer evil mastermind you know bond villain mastermind who sees everything eight steps ahead which is just inaccurate you know what i mean like nobody can <laughs> see that far ahead yeah and what are the unexpected things that come out that he, you can't foresee and this is one of them with grunschlick right here yeah yeah so scorpius has grunschlick using the mind control device again go tell the scarin that John Crichton is there because, as we all remember, the Scarens know about John Crichton because they know Scorpius wants him. So now we have the Scaren going after John and Dargo. Yes. And they are at the top of the facility and they find a door and they go out the door. And it's just, it's great John and Dargo banter. I just love the two of them together. Once they're outside, there's this great little exchange. So I'm just going to play because it's hilarious. No sign of the Scaren. You think he's following? Better hope he is. Sounds like you got a plan. We're going to bring him out here and see how he likes being in the cold. And what if he likes it? Look, one plan at a time. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh. I love it. Oh, my gosh. 
So, so how is this rate of Dargo's plans of cutting off your pinky finger? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I think this definitely rates much further towards the cutting off your own pinky finger end of the spectrum. Because I'm like, I love how his whole plan is like, I don't like cold. Maybe the Scarin will dislike the cold more than I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, though, Dargo. Well, how it does play out, though, is that the Scarin comes out and it is so cold that he can't do his heat thingy. So it is a mm-hmm. little bit of a defense. So it's not completely a terrible idea. Yeah. But it was pretty terrible because they have no terrible. weapons. They have no weapons because, as you recall from Daimi Dichotomy, Dargo brought his Qualta blade down, but then he left it in the coffin with Aaron as a tribute to her. He buried it with her, basically. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> One plan at a time, John. <laughs> I think that's my favorite bit because oh it comes gosh. back to the 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 whole who has a plan, whose plan is dumb, what plan are they going to try next? That is a recurring theme of how this crew <laughs> works together, and I just love it. Yeah, but like they all kind of go with it. This does show us how much again John and Dargo are friends. Yeah, because this whole interaction really does take them back to a place of of essentially wholeness. Because as you remember, we went from look at the princess, where Dargo was essentially the only one on John's side, to the Liars, Guns, and Money trilogy, where Dargo saw John as essentially an enemy, and then to the Daimi dichotomy, where there was kind of this like warming back up to John a little mm-hmm. bit, but at the same time they weren't in that BFF place anymore. And I think that now this is kind of like this is who John and Dargo are: are like two guys who have each other's back in a snowstorm, fighting against a Scarin. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I just love the two of them together. Yeah. But they get rescued. They do get by rescued. By a secret character, which now we're going to go back to whatever Zan go- and Zan and Stark were doing so we can get to the secret character, who I'm sure everybody on this podcast knows about, but we're going to do it anyway this way because it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, Zan and Stark have been out in the cryo-freeze chambers where all the bodies are and they are with Aaron and there's this little exchange where Grunchlick tries to get Zan to convince Krace to go away because Grunchlick is controlled by Scorpius and they want Krace and the gunship Talon to go away so they're at Aaron's coffin and Aaron's body is actually being kept alive by the cryo chamber it is like on that verge of death like the Iterion donors were so Zan has this crazy idea and Stark is next to her, and he he looks with his, his special senses for Aaron's soul, and he can't quite hear her screaming out in pain that she hasn't crossed over yet. So Zan's like, what if we bring her back to life? And Stark's like, no, and Zan punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the mystical side of Farscape that's all super hand-wavy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's actually rather touching, because Zan cares about Aaron enough and she feels her loss keenly enough and she's just been in John Crichton's head and he feels Aaron's loss so much that he wants to die and Zan Mm -hmm. is willing and wants to and I don't know how impulsive it is but it feels kind of impulsive to go in and save Aaron Mm -hmm. so Zan goes in and she sees Aaron essentially still in her flight chair. She's still in that chair she was in that she died in. And Aaron doesn't recognize her. And then they share unity 
Zan essentially forces her into unity and Aaron immediately understands what that means. Like Aaron, once she's sharing unity with Zan realizes that Zan is giving up her own life in order to save Aaron. Yeah. And she is not cool with it. Yeah. She's very much not cool with it. And it is kind of one of those things where you're like, how far would you go to save your friends? Mm -hmm. You know? So Zan gives up her own life essentially to save Aaron and so Aaron wakes up just in time to shoot the peacekeepers that were about to shoot Zan. Yeah. So Zan is not dead yet. Just FYI, she is dying now. She has given up her spiritual energy for Aaron. It's very fortunate that Dargo buried her with a qualta blade, I just got to say. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of one of those like <laughs> deus ex machina where I'm like, why would he do that when he just found Joffy? And like, clearly this is like a family heirloom. Yeah. I'm like, but I'm like, I'm willing to go with like his feelings for Aaron being like, you are family. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that Zan says to Aaron while, while she's in unity with her is I'm doing this because I love you, Aaron. And even more, I'm doing this because Crichton loves you. And mm. I, had a, I had a thought, and I don't know if this is a Watsonian or a Doyleist question, but like, how much of Aunt, of Zan's death is catering to John's storyline? And then you also have the issue with Virginia Hay, the actress who needs to leave the show because she's getting medical problems from the makeup yeah. that she's in. And how much of it is, you know, Zan really feeling this selfless about saving Aaron's life? And I don't know if there's a real answer to that, but it's something I was struggling with a little bit. Yeah, I, I will be honest. I also was extremely uncomfortable with the wording of like, I love you, but more importantly, John Crichton loves you. Right. You yeah. know, where I'm kind of like, uh, you were ready to kill John like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> you know, and it's and I think on the one hand, they were trying to give Zan a noble death mm -hmm. because, you know, Virginia Hay needed off the show like liver liver problems are no joke yeah but at the same time i'm kind of like you could have just phrased it as because i love you and left it at that and left it at that or because i loved you and you didn't deserve to die like this yeah and left it at that or something like that i feel like the weirdly enough just that single sentence turns it from zan making an active choice to save her friend to something that's like super women in refrigerator yeah feeling yeah you know like, oh, I, it's like almost an inverse of it, like where I have to save you and kill myself in order to make John feel something, you know? Yeah, that's kind of how I, I felt about it, too. As I said, it's kind of a, a mixture of what level of storytelling we're at problem. Mm -hmm. But the point yeah. is, we get Aaron back. Zan mm -hmm. is dying. Aaron saves Stark and Zan from a couple of Peacekeeper Marauder soldiers that have come to take them out. And then she goes on to... <laughs> to help out John and Dargo and Dargo is trying to fight the Scarab with a knife. And this is, <laughs> this is like, you know, the knife to a gunfight kind of problem going on. Cause the Scarab has impenetrable skin. But anyway, Aaron basically is able to shoot the Scarab enough to get a hole through his skin and they stab him with an icicle. And there's a grand reunion where it's actually John kind of like, you're not real until he's finally convinced that Aaron's real. Mm -hmm. So not everybody knows that Aaron is back yet. And I'm not sure that Crace's reaction would have changed even if he had known she was back because Crace is kind of like all about the honor. <laughs> so Scorpius 
tells Lieutenant Redshirt that he's going to get a chance to prove his piloting skills because this whole episode, Lieutenant Redshirt has been trying to like oust Bracca by being like, (laughs) I can outfly anything. I'm so cool. Lieutenant Bracca, so stupid. And so Scorpius is like, prove it. And so the Marauder takes off from the planet and immediately Talon and Crace see it and they go after it. And I want to play Crace's vengeance run. Grace, cease this pursuit at once. This pursuit will end in your death, Scorpius. Aboard this marauder is information that will help us defeat the Scallons. You may have forsworn the peacekeepers, but before you act, consider your fellow Sebations. You consider one Sebation who died at your hands, Officer Aaron Sun. Yes, Talon, I see it. Command carrier. Grace. You destroy this ship, and my command carrier will destroy you. Possibly. Tell him. Are we in agreement? Fire! Pilot. Scorpius is dead. His command carrier is now in pursuit of Talon. We'll draw it away from your position before we starburst. Scorpius is dead? Yes. Officer Sun is avenged. Oh, Crace. Crace, Such passion, you know? Yeah. You know, and this actually does really remind me of his reaction to his brother's death, where it's kind of like vengeance takes precedent over every other consideration. Yeah. Because even, I mean, Scorpius is literally like, hey, we can end this war and then the Scarens will stop killing, you know, Sebations that aren't peacekeepers. And Chris is still like, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much because he's got this attachment to Aaron that's a Mm -hmm. little creepy and a little obsessive, but very deep. And he is going to stop at nothing until she's avenged. And I kind of like that it's Pilot that he tells immediately too, because Pilot was also very attached to Aaron and they had a very strong friendship. And actually one thing we didn't talk about at the beginning of the episode is everyone's asking Pilot about what's John doing? Is John doing okay? Has there been any word? This is like five different people and Pilot is like so completely done with everybody and yells at them <laughs> to shut the frell up. And it's partly, I think Chiana is the one who comments that, you know, he was really close to Aaron and he took mm-hmm. her death really hard and I kind of liked that the shared moment between Crace and Pilot of saying oh Scorpius is dead she is avenged mm-hmm. is between these two characters who have this really strong attachment to her oh yeah the first time I was watching it I was a little bit confused about why the command carrier didn't fire at all on Crace even when he was within range and then you realize of course that it is because Scorpius wanted Crace to be alive to tell the crew that he had killed Scorpius. Yes. Because if Crace is then immediately killed and he doesn't tell the crew that he killed Scorpius, then the crew <laughs> is going to think that Scorpius is still alive. And Scorpius obviously wants to remain, air quotes, dead for as long as possible. Right. Because as we see a couple scenes later, Scorpius is indeed alive. He still has the chip. He and Bracca are now waiting for a Prowler contingent to come and get them. And they are not going to worry about Moya and the crew because you know what? Scorpius has what he wants. He has the wormhole information and he's got Mm -hmm. a gamut base, a new one with a hundred techs ready to go to work on the wormhole problem so that he can find a way to create weapons that'll help them in the war against the Scarens. Mm -hmm. 
So before we get to Aaron and John at the end, I want to skip to what is our least favorite plot line from this entire episode, which is Chiana and Jothi and Dargo. Can we pretend this doesn't exist? Oh, God. Gross, right? I know, but we literally have to deal with it for a few more episodes. I know. Okay. We're almost done with it. Okay. So uh, I think Taz and I have both made our opinions clear, which is that Dargo is acting like a giant tool bag and that he needs to treat his partners better. Mm -hmm. And that yelling at Chiana and treating her with disdain is not being a good partner. But so squicky. It really is squicky. Oh, my God. So Chiana and Jothi hook up and have sex in the kitchen or in the central chamber where they've just made dinner. So that's a double gross on my count. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it just grosses me out. And I mean, they have this kind of playful, flirty back and forth. Then, you know, they comforted each other after Aaron's death. And you can kind of see that continue to play out in the early scenes with them. And then, you know, Jothi's eating food because he's hungry because they've been forbidden to participate in going down into the planet with everyone else by Dargo, who says, just do what I say. Yeah, so, but he yells it. He's like, just do what I say. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, dude, no. I yeah. told my husband, I was like, no, you don't ever talk to your partner like that when, because we were having this, yeah, uh, my husband and I have been having this huge back and forth about Jothi and Gianna, where I'm like, <laughs> I kind of get Gianna wanting out of this relationship. And I think that subconsciously, the way that she sees a way out of this relationship is by blowing it up. She's yeah. essentially pressing, she's essentially pressing like the blow it all up button, even if I don't think that she realizes that's what she's doing. Yeah, you and know? I could I could definitely see that, and I I definitely take that to heart with like Chiana needing to not be with Dargo at this point in time, which is fine. It's mm-hmm. just Jothi, I don't know, just doing it with Jothi when you're already sleeping with his dad is just weird. And then it adds the added complication of just what is that age gap between mm-hmm. a Dargo and Chiana anyway? And we know Dargo is still fairly young, and he mm-hmm. probably had a kid really young. So Jothi was probably not a teen pregnancy for his wife, but you know very young adult very early in life but there's still that little bit of it's less the age gap and more the intergenerational thing that bothers me you know yeah I think my other thing with Jothi and Chiana is that and this really clearly plays out we didn't get the quote because it's really long and because it's so physical like you don't really hear it in the words but you see it in the body language is that the way they get to having sex is that they've made this dinner nobody wants to eat it because they all have to go save John and then Jothi is like eating and then he tries to feed Chiana something and she like bites him and then he gets like really upset and then he actually does get like physically violent with her and he's not playing he's like got her arm behind her back and he's essentially telling her like if you do that again I'm gonna break your arm which I'm like whoa like from a slave perspective you get it because like he had to live his whole life being really brutal and really mean But then Chiana is like kind of doing that thing she does where she gets out of situations by making it sexy. And that's what she does here. So like the whole scene just like squicked all my buttons. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, this is not an okay sexual encounter. Like, whereas whereas kind of their interactions last season at the end of last season, I'd kind of been like, okay, I kind of get it. They're coming from the same place. They have a lot in common. But like that scene where they actually do it, I'm like, I think unintentionally there was just like a lot of baggage there and Mm -hmm. it was like not okay. Yeah, no, I agree with that. 
And I, I just want to point out, though, that I don't think it's out of character for either one of them. Like, I still oh, no. think it's yeah. completely in character. And that's maybe what makes it, like, I don't, I guess I'm trying to separate, like, I don't hate the writers for doing this plot line because I think it's completely in character and they've been building towards it and it's been really well developed. It's just, I hate the plot line <laughs> because mm-hmm. I don't want Shiana to be hurt. I don't want Dargo to be hurt, even though they're not right for each other at this point in time. And Jothi just, you know, never clicked. And the way he's responding is totally in character and makes sense for, as you said, someone who's been a slave. But at the same time, I just, I wish better for them. You know, I wish better yeah. for all of them. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Just like wishing that it turned out differently and better. Yeah. And like, I do think that this is Chiana's way out. Like Chiana clearly doesn't know how to break up with people since Mm -hmm. all of her previous breakups have been, I robbed you and then I ran away, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So like, I think that this is kind of her way of subconsciously getting out of the relationship. And at the same time, I think Dargo does need to learn. Like, mm-hmm. that this is not how you treat a partner. Yeah, you know, definitely. On the other hand, I think that the fact that Gianna's doing it with his son is going to mean that he's not going to learn that lesson. Yeah. You know, and I do agree with, with my husband on this, that it's really gross of Jothy to essentially take the guy that rescued him and then sleep with that guy's fiance, wife, kind of space partner, wife. Partner, girlfriend. Yeah, partner. Whatever. You know, like, which does kind of put Gianna in this role of like being the property but Mm -hmm. at the same time I'm like she doesn't have to be the property you're just coming into this relationship and you're like breaking it up yeah it's a homewrecker kind of situation yeah yeah I don't know yeah gross anyway Anyway, so let's get on to a better couple (laughs) John and Aaron okay I'm gonna play their last conversation the episode they are both back on Moya it's kind of heartbreaking and there's a lot wrapped up into it I shouldn't be here. This is exactly where you should be. I love you. I love you too. Keeper training was right about one thing. Soldiers and emotional attachments. In battle, they distort your thinking. We're not in battle, and Scorpius. What happens? What happens when Moya comes into contact with more Scarans or Nabari or Sheyungs or something worse? I will not be the cause of any more deaths because my judgment was faulty. I will not permit anyone else to sacrifice their life for mine. What do you mean, anyone else? So Aaron has so much survivor's guilt right here. Mm-hmm. So much. She she thinks she shouldn't be alive. She should still be dead. The cost of her life is Zan's life, and she cannot deal with that. And it's just so yeah. heartbreaking to listen to her, to her go through that. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that survivor's guilt is why she's telling John that she can't act on it, even though she clearly already is emotionally attached to John? 
I think, no, I think that's one reason for it, but it's not the only reason. I think we're still in that phase of Aaron not able to handle the relationship. Like, she knows she wants it, but she doesn't know how to handle it and mm-hmm. deal with it. Because, I mean, the older I get, the more I'm like, you're emotionally attached, you're emotionally attached. doesn't matter if you're screwing or not, right? Yeah. You know, emotions happen. They're going to be there. They're not going to go away just because you're not having sex. And yes, sex can deepen those emotions. I totally understand that. But at the same time, she's wrong if she thinks that she's going to be protecting herself by not sleeping with John at this stage. So I think that we're still in that. She's still figuring out how to be in relationship and what that means for her and working through that part of accepting that she loves somebody and that she is loved by somebody. And more than mm-hmm. one somebody. I mean, Zan loved her enough to give up her life for her, too. Yeah. And I think feeling the loss of Zan and knowing that's coming is hitting her at the moment, too. Because she's mm-hmm. like, Zan loved me, and now she's going to die for that love. And I don't want to do that with John. Ooh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Zan is somebody that she loved, but not like her most loved. Do you know what I mean? It's not like Pilot or mm-hmm. or John or somebody that she has a really intimate connection with. And we've talked a lot about how Zan and Aaron are kind of not friend friends you know so like the fact that she got zan killed means like what could happen to john or pilot you know and if she's this torn up about zan how is she gonna feel about john and that's her point about you know we run into somebody bad they're gonna we're gonna have battle my judgment's gonna be affected going back to that kind of party line and i can see that kind of being like this is a mantra that she's been told throughout her life and the peacekeepers don't get attached. I mean, we saw that with the way we were and mm-hmm. many other episodes where it's come up that peacekeepers are not supposed to get attached to other people. Like they're supposed to be non-social. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. And we've seen that not working a lot, <laughs> but I think it's something easy to fall back on. And it's also a very common storytelling trope too, to add conflict to a relationship. I mean, this is, by far, not the first time mm-hmm. this has shown up in literature or television of keeping two or people even apart. In Farscape. Or even in Farscape of keeping two people apart. Yeah. Yeah. I will admit that is one reason I love Friday Night Lights mm-hmm. is because they were always kind of like the relationship between Coach and Mrs. Coach oh, yeah. is non-negotiable. Yeah. Like that's always going to be solid. And I'm like, so I feel like there are ways. And I, I feel like last season, Farscape did a really good job with this. And no spoilers, but season three gets like amazing. Like the conflict isn't doesn't stay about this yeah but kind of I feel like there are better ways to do conflict in a relationship rather than like I'm afraid of losing you so Mm -hmm. I'm gonna push you away yeah like I feel like that's kind of a that's kind of a cheap storytelling technique and it's been done so much yeah well and even like last season the conflict wasn't like I'm afraid of losing you so let me push you away the conflict was I love you I don't know how to love you because I was not brought up to love people Mm mm-hmm so that's the conflict in our relationship is that you're coming from romantic comedies and I'm coming from you can have sex, but don't go kissing people. You know? <laughs> I think that's called porn. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine? I totally bet that like there's like no shame for like dick pics and for oh, like yeah. um, for like what is it called? Like when you film yourself having sex. The sex tape? Sex tapes, yeah. I bet there's like all sorts of sex tapes on the Peacekeeper like <laughs> intrawebs, you know, that they just like pass around and they're like, yeah. they're like, oh yeah, I mean like I banged her like and we had really good sex. You should go ha- see if she wants to have sex with you too. You know? Or he, you know, or equal he, opportunities yeah. on the man carrier. Well, dude, I, I might have been talking about a female Peacekeeper That's that was true. like passing around. Or, like, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. 
Yeah. Okay, that got a little tangential. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's coming from a different different place. So we're we're still seeing though John and Aaron growing closer together because now she is able to fully say this is the first time they've said it to each other when they were each other because the last time Aaron said I love you was when Scorpius John heard it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't John, John in control. And so, but this time we have that first, hey, we're here in the same place. We love each other. We know we love each other. We want to be together. And Aaron is still struggling with how to do that, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that survivor's guilt is a big part of it, like you said. And also just there's a lot going on in this scene because they're also... For a lot of it, they're not facing each other. Mm-hmm. They're both staring at the interons, and I, I know I said that wrong, like the interons, something like that. They're both, yeah, something like the that. The donor bodies facing, that the uh, donor bodies <laughs> that they have yeah, snatched. Both, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they're both staring at them and not at each other. And then when they finally do come together, it's like this firecracker of explosion. Mm-hmm. You know, all that music was them, them kissing. Hmm. So, yeah, that's where that's where season of death ends with ironically not as much death as you would think. Yep. And uh John goes to see Zan and who's sitting with Stark in the burned part of Moya and and she tells him, "Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to die." So, I guess that's the death part is is Zan's death is coming up and that's that's how it how it goes. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that episode. Yeah, there was like, I mean, it was pretty busy for an episode that really was very self-contained. Yeah, yeah. So what would you give Season of Death? I think it's a four for me. I really like it a lot. I think it keeps moving. I think it wraps up Diamond Dichotomy pretty well. And it's got some great one-liners. And I think it does a pretty good job with the exposition. Because really, they break up the exposition by having Scorpius eat other people's body parts or have them eat their own body parts. Which, yeah. It worked for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in terms of Scorpius, totally in character. Yep. Yeah, I would go with you, 3.54. Like, Season of Death isn't, like, a super fave of mine, because I think just Dime Dichotomy, like, takes the charts and blows them off. You know, just like, it's like, you you think we're on a scale of 1 to 5? Let me give you a 10. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, So, yeah, but at the same time, it's a good season opener, really solid. Mm Mm-hmm. And let's see. Oh, in Wardrobe Watch, everybody's pretty much in their usual outfits, except I'm pretty sure they changed Aaron's hair. And I, it just like looks longer and darker. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that develops as we go through season three, because we haven't gotten to the main wardrobe changes yet, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. So join us next week for Sons and Lovers. Ooh, that sounds sexy. Or actually, I mean... Maybe we should pronounce it like Soons and Lovers. I can't remember. I think there's a son involved, an actual son. So we can call okay. it Sons and Lovers. All right. <laughs> so I I clearly have no memory of this episode. So it'll be exciting for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Oh, man. We are so glad to be back, people. And, and we are Farscape Friday Podcast. We are at Gmail if you want to send us a note and tell us what you thought of the episode. We are on Tumblr. And we are on DreamWidth, and we are Farscape Friday on Twitter, and talk to us there. If you uh, like our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps people find us, and we will see you next week. Bye! Bye.